please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. It's so good to have Matt and his wife with us today. It's always good to have one of our elders to come and to assist and lead in worship. Uh, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, let's begin with verse 8, <clears throat> or excuse me, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not, been, have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, uh, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this, in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that we could gather in your house today. It has been so good to, to lift up your name and to, to sing your glories. Lord, to, to hear your word read and, and to be encouraged, God, and, and to come and to confess our sins, uh, to lift our prayers of, of praise and thanksgiving and supplication for the needs of those around us. Uh, but Lord, it is really good to be in your house this morning. Uh, to, to listen to your word. I pray that you would give us a, a sense of attentiveness to the things that are spoken today. We pray for your Holy Spirit, Lord, to, to not only help us to, to comprehend these things, but also to, to meditate and to think about and to consider how these things apply to our lives as well. So we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would teach us today, that you would instruct us, that you would change us, God, that to trust the things that your word says and to receive them by faith and to live them in such a way as well. We thank you and pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, we live in a, a day and time when life as we know it obviously has been turned upside down and we can feel that very much uh, during the holidays. And, and I know that for many people, their goal is they just want to get life back to normal. But brothers and sisters, I, I think in some ways God is being gracious to the church in America. Uh, I think He is challenging us, and I think He is testing our faith. 
and uh, helping us to, to see where we are in our relationship with him with all the COVID stuff. I know it's not just limited to the United States and we have a tendency to always process things through the eyes of how it affects us. I recognize that, but I think at least in, to some degree that God is actually being good to us. And, and, I, and I, I just wanna say, I, I know that the pandemic has, has not been fun. It's been difficult at least, and I know that there are people who are suffering during these times, and I don't mean to make light of those things. I know there are people who have lost their jobs, there are people who have lost loved ones, and they are grief, grieving in this holiday season. But I, I still think that even through those hard times, God is, is being gracious to us. Because genuine faith is, is active. You know, so long the church in America has sort of had a watered-down gospel that it's just, all you have to do is just believe in Jesus. You just got to pray a prayer. You pray that prayer, you're good. And it doesn't matter how you live your life or whether that affects anything. But that's not what we read in Scripture. That's not what we've seen in the book of Hebrews. That genuine faith is active. It, it, is, it is trusting in God and His promises in the face of circumstances that would lead us to believe otherwise. You know, we live in a world that's constantly telling us the opposite of what God has revealed in this. And the reality is, is do we trust this? Do we believe in this? And as we do, and as we follow what God says, you know, God changes us. He, he causes us to live differently. He changes our character and our, our perspective, and, and we live in different ways. And that's what we see in these closing chapters of the book of Hebrews. It, it changes the way we interact with other people. Uh, the writer here says that we love. It causes us to love others. And, and I'm not just talking about you know, doing a kindness every once in a while. You know, you see these random acts of kindness, and that's a great thing. But love is so much deeper than that. And he, he defined that love in the first three verses of this chapter where he said, you know, it's actually love that would cause you to open your home to strangers. It, it, it would allow you to let people come into your life, be very vulnerable, and having someone come into your household, and you would feed them, and you would house them and you might let them live with you for a while while they're preaching the gospel or whatever they're doing. And so it, there's a sense of, of real sacrifice there. It is a sense of, of going and ministering to those who are in prison. Those who have no one to take care of them, their prisons were much different than ours. And so someone to go and feed them and clothe them and to care for them. And you're also reaching out to people that society has sort of condemned. And it said that these people have done something wrong. And by caring for them, you're associating with them, which could then tarnish your reputation. But that's okay. That's what love does. But, it, but it's not just in how we relate to others, but also in how we relate to ourselves. And there's a sense, and as we look at the verses 4 through 6, where there's a perspective of seeing that we are to live in holiness. That we are to live differently than the way that the world does, to live as, as Christ has commanded us. And there were two uh, topics that the, the pastor here addresses, and, and they were things that were not only needed in that day, but they are things that are idols in our day, and that's sex and money. Okay, he talks about marriage and sexuality, he talks about money, and he said, you know, you don't honor marriage. You know, you don't define what that looks like, God has done that. And you are to honor it the way that God has established that. And uh, you are to enjoy the sexual intimacy as God defined that. 
But also, in terms of your money, it's not that you use money. You don't love money because money gives you what you want. Money feeds your flesh. It gives you all the desires of your heart. But instead, there's a sense to have con contentment in the Lord and, and to trust Him. And so, there's a sense in which it changes us. But also, it affects our relationship towards God as well. And that's what we're going to be looking at this morning in verses 7 through 19. Now, it, it is this relationship with God that, that not only is the author addressing here to us, but also to his flock as well. Because you've got to remember, here's a pastor who loves his people. He loves them very much. And he sees that they are wavering in their faith. And they are, they are struggling. And, and he wants their faith to be fully placed in Jesus Christ alone and in nothing else. And, and he wants them to grow in their faith. So he encourages them in a, in a couple different areas this morning. And I want to look at this. First of all, he tells them to consider their leaders. Consider their leaders. Look at verse 7, if you would. And he said, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, we see a number of things here. Um, but uh, before we look at those, I just want to say this. That, you know, there may be some people who wonder what following church leaders has to do with God. Okay, because there's sort of this idea in our culture, not in the culture, in secular culture, I'm talking about in the church, in the ecclesiastical culture, that you can love Jesus, but not his church. As a matter of fact, there's actually been books written on that topic of how you can love Jesus, but not his church. But brothers and sisters, I want to warn you, that is a very dangerous idea. Uh, no, excuse me, I'm sorry, that is an unbiblical idea. The Bible speaks quite to the contrary. Uh, but see if I could illustrate this just a minute. Let's just say, for example, you loved me, and you're like, Rick, you are the greatest. I think you're fantastic. I'm so thankful the Lord has made you my pastor, and I just love you, brother, so much. But you say to me, but your wife... Not so much so, okay? As a matter of fact, I don't even like her. I don't even like to be around her. Now, anybody that knows Robbie and I would know it's actually flip-flop. It'd be the other way around, okay? But this is safe for illustration, okay? But let's just say you say, I just really don't like her, and I can't stand her, and I really don't want to be around her. And as a matter of fact, I don't even really need her. Now, how do you think I'm going to take that? This is the love of my life. She's the greatest. And you're telling me you love me, but you hate what I love the most? That just doesn't make sense. And yet, that is a prevailing thought in our church. And so people look at that and they think, so what does church leadership have to do with it? But brothers and sisters, you've got to understand that God, in Ephesians 4, we're told that God gave leaders to the church as a gift. They're not perfect. But he has given them as a gift. Just like he's given spiritual gifts, he's given graces to the church and individuals, he's also given offices. He's given the office of pastor and teacher, he's given the office of evangelist, and so on and so forth. And, and they are to equip the saints for the work of ministry through the ministry of the word. They are to be those under-shepherds. And so to, to love God is, is to love his church and also to uh, love and appreciate the leaders of the church as well. So look at this in verse 7. He talks about leaders. They're probably elders and pastors because they spoke to you the word of God. 
Now, notice that the word spoke is in the past tense. It, it appears that the author is referring to men who preached the gospel to these Hebrews, and, and as a result of that preaching, they came to faith in Jesus Christ. So these are, are past leaders, okay? And, and the reader exhorts him to remember these leaders. And one of the reasons why he might be exhorting them to remember them is, is to remember their teaching, to remember what it is that they taught as they brought the Word of God to them. But, but church leaders are not only teachers, they're more than that as well. They are also examples. He said, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Uh, church leaders, as I said earlier, are not perfect, but they can be encouraging examples. Uh, the word consider actually means to ponder time and time again. It's not just a sense of thinking about someone to, you know, appreciate them once and then that's it. But it's like thinking on it again and again and again. Um, and to, to think about the way that they've lived out their lives. Now, for some of these believers, uh, the, the people that were their leaders at the beginning may be martyrs. They may actually be dead. But it's very, very likely, and I think safe to say, that all of those leaders had suffered in some way. And, and he's challenging them uh, that, uh, you know, to look at their life and, and yet see how they endured and how they persevered and how they finished the race and lived the life for Jesus to the very end. Because here were believers who were struggling because they were suffering for their faith and so they were tempted to walk away from Jesus and return to Judaism. And he said, but look at these guys. They brought the word of God to you. They preached that to you. See the way they lived their life, even to the very end. And so therefore, the readers are to scrutinize closely their leader's way of life. Now, I think this is one reason why Christian leaders live in a fishbowl. I mean, if you look, if you know pastors or you've been close to them, you know that their life is sort of like out there for everybody to see. Everybody in the congregation, everybody in the community. As a matter of fact, I'll just share something a little personal. Whenever anyone was going to marry into our family, I would sit down with them and I'd say, I just want you to know that by association, your life is going to be under greater scrutiny than what it is right now. And they would look at me and go, yeah, right. And then they would marry into the family, and they're like, wow, everybody's in your business. Everybody feels like they have a right to tell you how to live your life. And it's like, that's true, because part of that is, at least for pastors, and I think it's true for ruling elders as well, their lives are fishbowl, and everybody gets to see what is going on. But I think part of the reason for that is so that others can consider your life, and they can see that life that, that you live out before them. And it's for this reason that the elders are to be above reproach in every aspect of life. As Titus, or as Paul talks to Titus in Titus 1 verse 7. So leaders are not perfect, but, but we, should, uh, we should follow their example. Now let me just say this. Um, there in our denomination, I'll just sort of share something that's happened recently. We have this ability at the General Assembly, that if there's a father who goes home to be with the Lord, that someone could write a memorial about their life. This isn't so much exalting the man as much as talking about God's faithfulness in that man's life. And they can write that out, and that can be submitted 
to the General Assembly, and then that's put in the minutes forever and ever and ever. And it's just a way to show honor. It's actually doing exactly here what this passage is talking about. It gives you an opportunity to reflect on that. Well, in recent years, there's been people who have objected and said, wait a minute, this man, you know, there's maybe all these glorious things the Lord has done in his life, but in this one area, he believed, what he believed wasn't right. And so we shouldn't memorialize him. Well, the problem with that is this. If your standard is going to be perfection, then we never can look to anybody. Because brothers and sisters, we, as leaders, are sinners saved by grace. And, and are we to say that there is no place for the work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life, even though they're not perfect? No, the Spirit has worked. So we need to understand, don't look for perfection, but still you can see sort of what the Christian life is, is to look like. And it says here that we are to imitate that. Uh, Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, some people might say, now wait a minute, but don't we read in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that we are to, to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith? Why, why are we looking to leaders? Well, that's not necessarily something that's diametrically opposed, but really what you see here is you see uh, true discipleship taking place, that you have those who are, are following Jesus, who, who now he's calling you to follow them as they follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we become like him. And so we are instructed to, to find godly men and, and even women uh, from our past and, and maybe even farther back than our past. Uh, maybe it's, it's the saints of old. Maybe it's Calvin or, or Luther or maybe some less known saint that you, you read a biography of their life and you are encouraged by them. But we are to remember that. I think next to the scriptures, probably the best kind of book to read is biographies because they can encourage us in, in our faith. And uh, we don't worship these brothers and sisters, but we are encouraged by them. And so I want you this morning, just as you hear these words, to consider for yourself, has the Lord placed such an individual in your life? You know, do you have someone that you can look back on and see a long life of obedience? You get to see them over their entire life. Perhaps it's a former pastor, maybe it's a Sunday school teacher, maybe it's an elder in your childhood church. You know, and, and while this wouldn't be referring to uh, church leaders, even your parents, though, could be that for, for some of us as well. But these individuals were part of your life and for specific reasons. And one of those is, is that you might be, uh, that they might be someone that you could emulate in adulthood. So, so you have uh, leaders who are teachers, you have leaders who are example, but you also have leaders who are shepherds as well. Shepherds. Uh, look at verse uh, 17, if you would. Uh, actually, 17 through 19, but I want to particularly want you to notice the first part of verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I don't know if you realize this or not. Uh, I've been in the church long enough to know that elders of the church carry a very heavy burden upon them. They love you very much to serve in that capacity. 
because they are responsible for watching over the souls of those who entrust that's entrusted to them. And, and of course, God gives serious directives to these leaders about their duties and even talking about how they'll be accountable for these duties. And we, we even see that here at the end of verse 17, that they will give an account for the way that they watch over and care for. Uh, and, and as teaching and ruling elders are to keep watch over the souls of their people, uh, just to give you a picture of what that looks like, uh, the same verb that's, that's found here is found also in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, okay, in, in which believers are called to be alert in prayer. It's that same word for that watch over. It's a, it comes from the same verb. And, and it, it means to be alert in prayer in our battle mm -hmm. against cosmic darkness. You know, so there's sort of that sense of heightened awareness. So you might look at uh, uh, a picture or, or, or see uh, some film or something that has a shepherd in it. And, you know, you have the shepherd who's sitting there and he's watching his sheep. And you're thinking, this guy isn't doing anything. He's just sitting there. But, you know, what you don't realize is as he's sitting there, he's watching each sheep to make sure that they're okay He's watching for any snakes or bears or wolves or any enemies that, that might be coming as well. He wants to make sure that they have all that they need to be fed and to be cared for. And so while he looks like he's sitting there passive, he is incredibly busy, busy caring for and watching over his sheep. And that's, that's sort of the picture here. But, but while God gives clear instructions regarding leaders, he also instructs Christians how they are to live carefully in a way that encourages their leaders rather than dragging them down. And, and, and we can be both and uh, um, for, forever. I mean, it should be that believers' uh, design is to help their leaders in their calling, as it says in the last part of verse 17, to let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And so we are to live in such a way as, as followers of Christ that we actually encourage the leaders that the Lord has placed over us. Now, now, how do Christians do that? Well, we see here that the church is to obey and to submit to the leadership. Now, there are probably few words that generate a reaction in individuals uh, in our day and time like obey and submit. You know, those are not words that we, we sort of chafe against those kind of concepts. Uh, I've been at weddings that I have performed, and uh, after I get done, someone will say, you know, I love the ceremony, it was beautiful. However, if you ask me if I would submit to my husband, there's no way I would do that. You know, it's just sort of countercultural, and, and uh, we naturally want to rebel against such words. And I think there's some reasons for that, and I think it's important to sort of think about why that might be the case. Uh, part of that is, is that our culture has been thoroughly influenced by postmodernism, okay? And I think so much so we don't even realize it. And, and how much of it has sort of snuck into the church. I mean, we, we have been taught that each person is free to make up their own mind in, in the matters of truth, and, and if even absolute truth even exists, you know, in people's minds. But even as Christians, we, we wrestle with that. And I think also authority, uh, there's sort of this idea that authority is something to be questioned. And yielding to authority is to be avoided, if at all possible. And, and, and there's sort of a, a sense of being suspect of any authority. 
And so what we usually do is we come to an authority and we stand there individually as the authority ourselves, never questioning our own authority or our fallibility. We think that we're perfect in that judgment. And we stand and we make judgment on others. And, and especially upon institutions. In postmodernism, there's just something about institutions, whether it be the church, whether it be the government, you know, whatever, a business, whatever it might be, that there's just sort of a sense of being suspect of that. And then not only that, but with the digital age, then everybody has now become an expert. So you go to the doctor, and, and he gives you his diagnosis of what's wrong with you, and then what do you do? You scurry home, and you get on webmd.com, and you check it out to make sure that what they said was correct, and, and you come, and you have two or three opinions. Even in business, sort of the chain of command has been flattened. You no longer have a hierarchy where you have bosses. Now people are, for the most part, want to be seen upon the same level. I need to have the same authority as my, my boss. In, in one sense, I, it needs to be more of a collaboration. All of that is sort of that postmodern mindset that is molding and shaping the way that we see authority. And when we come to Scripture, we bring all that with us to think that that's what things ought to look like. And not only that, we're also Americans, so we're a little individualistic by nature. And, 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 uh, and not only that, but also with the Internet, we have uh, access to all kinds of preachers. You can listen to, you know, Ligon Duncan. You can listen to John MacArthur. You can listen to Tim Keller. And, and you listen to all that stuff, and you say, hey, my pastor's not as good as him. Well, I guess he's not due my respect because, you know, whatever. And so, you know, we, it's so easy for us just, just to do that. But, but all these things, then what happens is that makes leadership rather challenging and, and difficult in the church today. Uh, we do stand level at the cross, brothers and sisters. I just want you to know that. Okay, we stand level at the cross. But the Lord has given certain individuals to the church to lead the church. Not in a sense, in a power move, but in a sense to serve the body, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ, to care for the flock. But if, if the sheep say, I don't want to go there, or I'm not going to go there, then that makes it much more difficult for the, for the leaders. And so the author, this pastor here, he says to his followers, he said, look guys, obey your leaders. Now the word here has several nuanced meanings. But here it means to conform one's actions to another's direction. To conform your actions to another's direction. Because you've placed confidence in that person. Okay, like I said, it doesn't mean that person's perfect. But you recognize that God has put them in that position. And so you obey them and you follow them. Okay, the word submit means that the listeners have a, a sort of a readiness to comply. Okay. And so when you sort of put that together, it's sort of that idea of conforming your actions to another's directions with a readiness to comply to that. So do you, do, you, do you see that sort of that humility that God calls us to have towards our leaders? And yet you see the cultural contrast of that of someone who stands up here and says, okay, you need to be accountable to me and you need to follow my direction. And, and we see this, brothers and sisters, in our times. And I think... There's probably been nothing more that's brought this out than mask. Is it no mask or is it mask? You know, and I'm not going to get into all of that. But I'm just saying, you know, that if we really understood this, I think a lot of churches wouldn't be going through the struggles that, that they're going through. And, and it's something that we need to, 
to really follow. Now, having said that, I do want to clarify, this doesn't mean unqualified blanket obedience, okay? I mean, that's how we end up with the Jim Jones type of thing, where everybody's committing suicide, you know, because they blindly followed the leaders, you know, and it does not provide grounds for authoritative, authoritative dictatorship in the church as well. I think, you know, I don't want to read too much into this, but it is talking about leaders here, plural, you know, and we do know in other places in Scripture, it talks about the plurality of elders. Uh, in other words, there's not just one guy running the church. You know, there's, there's a multitude of men. And where that is, is there, there's more likely to have that sense of accountability, that sense of prayer, uh, of direction, of moving together. And if you've ever been in a session meeting, you understand not every elder thinks alike. Okay, and that's okay. Actually, that's a good thing. And that helps us oftentimes to stay more in the middle because we have that tension and stuff. And so uh, you have these men who, who are praying. But anyway, but, but both of these commands together sort of means that the church members uh, will adhere to the word of God and their leaders as they, as they speak that word, as they teach, they preach that word, and as they're leading out of that uh, word. And so uh, we need that today, okay? We, we definitely need that today. And uh, as one commentator pointed out, he says, uh, we need this uh, today because of the wildly divergent demands individuals place upon elders or upon leaders. Pastors are expected to be all things to all people and do all things expectantly, exceptionally well. Pastors are called on to be social coordinators, masterful speakers, sometimes a number of times a week, insightful counselors, Efficient administrators, strong leader, encouraging motivator, enlightening teacher, soul-winning evangelist, foolproof marriage mender, faithful husband, loving father, and consistent model of the faith. And of course, you know, that's, that's sort of, only Jesus could do that, right? You know, and uh, so as much as elders, as we want to do that, it's very difficult. And so I, I think this is a good challenge for all of us, you know, uh, just to even look at that and say, what, what, what is my attitude about, you know, pastor? Am I looking at the pastor or the elders to do everything, you know, or, or what do I come with this with a, more of a sense of humility? So, so there's a sense in which he calls us to live in obedience and submission. But there's another thing he mentions in verse 18 that's incredibly important. Brothers and sisters, if you don't hear anything else, hear this today, okay? And uh, he, he calls us to pray for the leaders. Verse 18 says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to account honorably in all things. You see, since the faithful leaders of the church are to be used of the Lord uh, for the extending of Christ's name and His kingdom, you know, they sort of have a bullseye painted on their back. Since they're the guys that are supposed to be caring for the sheep, Satan would much rather take out a shepherd than take out a sheep. Because if you can take out a shepherd, then you get all the sheep with it. If you take out one sheep, well, you, you got one sheep. And, and so, you know, faithful men are Satan's targets and, and can come under strong <clears throat> temptations and stresses. And so, brothers and sisters, please be praying for your elders. Be praying for your leaders. They need that very much. So, so he says that we should consider our teachers... But also, he says, beware of false teachers in verse 9. Uh, he says, do not be led away by diverse and strange 
teachers or teachings. You see, false teachers are a real danger, and so this is a very sober warning. And, and there's a long history of false teachers among God's people who have ravaged the flocks. I mean, we might think that the false teachers are out there. The false teachers are on TV, right? They're the televangelists or whoever. And so they're out there, and we don't have to worry about that. But that's not what Scripture teaches us. If you would, turn over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20 and verse 28. And, and Paul basically is meeting with the elders before he's he's leaving and he wants to give them final instructions he, he stands before them and he says guys i have been faithful to preach the gospel to you I, i'm leaving you uh feeling confident that i have done what i should have done and i'm now turning this over to you and so now he's giving them instructions on how they are to care for the flock he says pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Wow, talking about pressure. No pressure here. You know, this is my church that I've died for. Take care of it, okay? Um, I'm sorry, I say that sort of tongue-in-cheek. But, but that is the weight that an elder feels, by the way, uh, that sense that this is people who Jesus decided for. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. There's a sense here in which from within the church, actually, it could be even within the number of elders, there would be false teachers that would arise to leave the church astray. Now, what was the, the false teaching that these Hebrews were facing? Well, he defines it as diverse and strange teachings. And, and that could really refer to any doctrine out of accord with the Bible. But it, it especially refers to new teachings. And, and it is true that we as people so often are enamored with the new, right? Well, we want new information. We want more information. We want insights. I mean, you can see why Gnosticism was so enticing to humanity. You know, you could be sort of an inside track. You could have this special knowledge that no one else had. And, and so, uh, evidently, there were teachers that were instructing these believers about dietary laws and, and rules. And so the writer instructs them, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, but instead, remember your leaders. In other words, remember the things they taught, remember the example of their life. Don't be sucked into this new teaching that's coming up. Instead, be reminded of the gospel and of the things that you have been taught. Uh, brothers and sisters, you know, it just it does seem like as, as people, we like external things. We like to worship God through rituals. And I think part of that is there may be a sense in which uh, there's sort of a, a works in that. It gives us something to do. And so we, we like that. But that that's, comes contrary to the gospel. Really, we come to God not because of anything we do, but because of what He has done for us. And, and we will never be helped, nor will it give us a closer relationship with the Lord as we do these ritualistic things, as we uh, have a special diet or eat special foods. As a matter of fact, dietary regulations is contrary to the point of Christ's sacrifice for us. Look at verses 10 and 11. He said, we have an altar 
from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Now here again, as he's done so often before, he's talking about that the Day of Atonement. And, and the sacrifices you know, were made, the blood was brought into the Holy of Holies and put on the altar, but the bodies themselves were taken outside the camp. Uh, listen, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 16. You can turn there if you want. Leviticus 16, 27. And the bowl, remember that on the Day of Atonement, there was a bowl that was offered and a goat that was offered. Uh, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering, whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place, shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. You see, there were times when the priests would actually eat the sacrifices that were made. But, but in this case, they were not allowed to eat the sacrifice, partly because that was because this was a sin offering. And, and, and so... Um, because of that, it was not something that they should eat. So the carcass instead of the bull and the goat were taken outside the camp and it was burned. Now, to be taken outside the camp was to stress the removal of sin. That their blood was offered, covered their fence, and that sin was removed. And the, the shame that was associated with that sin. And, and in like matter, we read in verse 12 that Jesus was crucified outside the city of Jerusalem, uh, dying the death of a common criminal to bear our sin and, and its shame before God as well. And, and so we who are Christ are to be committed to following him and bearing his reproach. Look at verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach or the shame he endured. Now, what does that shame look like? Well, it could look, look differently, but uh, for these Jewish believers to bear Christ's shame meant that Jew Jewish family members might reject them because they believed in Jesus Christ. Uh, the state might persecute them because they believed in Jesus Christ. Um, and so it could look differently in different ways. But, you know, it, it's a sense of, of suffering because you are identified with Christ. Well... Uh, Moses spoke of the shame of Christ as well. If you would, turn back to Hebrews chapter 11, just a couple of chapters back in verse 26. And uh, this is what we read. He considered, that is Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. Now, brothers and sisters, uh, like these New Testament believers, uh, we will be attempted to avoid the shame of, of Christ. And, and it's so much easier uh, if you could instead compromise to follow an easier gospel. And that's what we hear so much out even in, in the American church. is sort of like an easier gospel rather than following him and feeling that shame. And there are many gospel messages out there that sort of wed together culture and Christ in a, in a way that avoids the shame of truly following the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're even hearing this in the church as there are those who are insisting that you have to believe in certain cultural teachings 
or you're not being sensitive to the culture and 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 you're and they're they're tying that together with Christ even though the Bible doesn't do it in that same way but he says but considering the reproach and shame of Christ's greater wealth uh, that is something that is the call of every believer till the time that Christ comes back that that's part of our union with Christ is there will be that suffering there will be that shame now what's this greater wealth that he's talking about well if you think back to chapter 11 and what the pastor here taught in that chapter, it is the inheritance that, that waits us. Uh, it's the, the, the heavenly city. Uh, we read that in verse 14. He says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. In other words, we're not tied to this world, brothers and sisters. Our faith in Christ is not tied here, but instead it's looking forward to that heavenly city. And, and it's important for us just to stop and to sort of reflect on this in terms of our own faith and, and ask, are we wholehearted in our identity with Christ? Are we wholehearted in our identity with Christ? Are we ready even for His reproach and shame and, and ready, even longing for that heavenly city? Or are we more concerned about what people think of us, about the things that we say. And so are we tempted to change and, and, and to compromise as a result of that? I like the way one pastor put it. He goes, is our gaze fixed ahead on that promised inheritance so that, come what may, we persevere with that promise, galvanizing our hearts and determining our actions. That's what we want, is sort of that resolution towards following Christ. And so we need to not only consider our leaders and also guard against false teaching, but also we need to keep our eyes upon Jesus. We need to look to Jesus. We see that in verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, it's, it's interesting. This could be a reference. Uh, well, it, it obviously is speaking of the eternal attributes of Christ. I mean, even in Revelation chapter 1, verse 8, we read about Jesus that he is the one who is, who is and who was and who is to come is how he is described. He is the same. He is he's eternal. Okay, but you know, is this a reference to what comes before it? That you're to remember these uh, these faithful pastors who who preached the word and were an example to you and understand that you know in the same way that they followed Christ, he calls you to that same thing. He's the same yesterday, today. And forever, he doesn't change, or or whether it's a reference to the false teachers of, you know, um, you, you ought not to be thinking that Christ is going to give you some new revelation. He is the same yesterday, today, or forever. But but the idea is, is if you anchor yourself to Jesus, you'll you'll not be tossed around by the latest teaching. Christ is the same, and and so how are we to respond to this? Well, the author of Hebrews emphatically states that Christians are not to participate in the lifeless sacrifice of the Jewish system. However, that doesn't mean that there's not sacrifices that Christians make. Uh, knowing and, and resting in the once-for-all and sufficient sacrifice of Christ, we are to offer to God through Jesus our praise, our, our worship. Uh, verse 15, through Him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Now, think about the context here. 
Here's a pastor who's writing to a group of people who are struggling in their faith, and they're not even sure they're going to believe in Jesus. You know, and he is saying to them, but if you have faith in the Lord Jesus, it not only will you believe in him as the ultimate, but it, it, it loosens your lips to praise him and to worship him, and, and to do so continually. And, and as I read this, I just think about the pictures that the scriptures give us of heaven and how continually, day and night, the angels are falling down before God. The elders are worshiping our, our God and our Savior. And one day we'll be there. We'll get to do that as well. But, but even here on this earth, there is that call to continually worship and to praise Him. F.F. Um, F. Bruce, who's a... a, a Bible teacher, a commentator, uh, he, he connects this passage with 1 Peter 2, 5 and Romans 12, 1. Let me just read those. 1 Peter 2, 5, he said, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer, listen to this, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Romans 12, 1, a very familiar passage. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a, listen here again, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. So, you know, which is your spiritual worship. And so he's saying here that, that that's the Christian life. You know, he, he actually wisely goes on and he says, Christianity is sacrificial through and through. He said, it is founded on the one who sacrificed himself, that is Christ. And now as Christians, we now offer our lives, our lips of praise and worship to him, and our service in our lives as well to him. And that's what he talks about in verse 16. He said, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to the Lord. So it's not just... Uh, we praise God with our lips, but also we do so. And we do this in a fallen world. And so, brothers and sisters, this is costly to us as Christians. There's a sense of, of a sacrifice that's built into our lives. So the whole idea when churches stand up and say, all you got to do is believe in Jesus, pray a prayer, and then go live however you want, is totally missing the power of the gospel in a person's life. Because when Christ gets a hold of us, He changes us. He changes us, and, and he, he, he causes in us a love for Him and a desire for Him, even though it's costly. We say, so what? Jesus paid the price for our sins. Jesus has gone, and He says, I'm preparing a place for you. And so we as believers are looking forward to the day when we can go and we can be with Him. Brothers and sisters, as we consider these passages this morning, I just want to ask some questions of us. And I want you just to think about this before we go to a time of silence this morning. And then I want you just to, to pray to the Lord in response to these things, however the Holy Spirit leads you. But just ask, do I love the church as these exhortations call me to? Do I love the church? Do I pray for the pastor as he studies, for the worship services before we meet, for the preaching of the word to, to bless our hearts? Do I pray for the elders and their, their heavy responsibility to love and to care for the church? Brothers and sisters, 
our elders actually are doing double duty. They're serving in whatever church they're attending, plus they're serving our church as well. And so they carry an extra heavy load. Um, do I love the church of Christ, no matter how spotted and blemished she may be? And then to ask yourself, am I teachable? Do I struggle with the pull of outside teaching, even if it conflicts with the teaching of our church? Is my response to the gospel one of sacrifice with my lips and with my life as well? Brothers and sisters, genuine faith is active. And, and, and if, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, I know many of you are, then this is what Christ is doing in us. This is the work that He's doing in us. Genuine faith in Jesus is not just a head thing, it's a life thing as well. Let's bow our heads this morning and consider these things. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your wonderful word that you have given to us. And, and Lord, even just, it's just amazing as we, we read even this closing chapter to see how pointed this is, even in our day and our time. And I, I pray that we would not just be quick to, to walk away and be like a man who looked into a mirror and walked away and forget what he looks like. But Lord, I pray that this week that you would bring these words back to our minds and cause us to consider them, whether... We're leaders in the church. Is there a sense in which we are watching over it, that we do have that sense of alertness? Or, or whether, God, we are congregants. And, and are we living our lives in such a way to make uh, it a joy for our leaders rather than groaning? Is there a sense in which we're careful about the things that we listen to and the things that we're being taught? Or are we giving ourselves over to false teachers? I just pray, uh, Lord, that you would... Uh, Help us to continue to rely upon the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, to be our strength, to be the one that works in us and, and changes us. And, and Father, I just pray this morning uh, that um, this holiday season, as people are traveling, that you would not only watch over and protect them, but Lord, as, as they get together with others, whether it be in person or virtually, Lord, that, that we would be a witness to who you are just as Matt had prayed earlier and Lord I pray that um, that the gospel would ring forth from your people um, boldly this Christmas season and Lord we just pray that the seeds would be planted and watered we ask these things God in your name Amen